Good morning. So, repetition. We know it can be a bad thing. Like, if we repeat an unnecessary word over and over, like if this morning I were to say, um, and uh, over and over and over, you might start to notice and it could get annoying. Repetition can be bad as well if popular slang words or phrases are overused. And I will spare you of some examples along those lines this morning. Uh, repetition can also be a bad thing if a person, especially a person we love, continues to repeat a poor pattern of behavior or a sin. But we also know the value of repetition. We know its value when it comes to improving at a skill, like playing an instrument or riding a bike or playing a sport. Uh, Reggie Jackson, he was a professional baseball player, is in the Hall of Fame. He said, a baseball swing is a very finely tuned instrument. It is repetition and more repetition than a little more after that. We know the importance of repetition in daily life, how it helps us develop good rhythms and habits, which in turn help us serve and care for and lead other people more effectively. That relates to things like prayer and Bible study, uh, family meal times, even uh, leadership and service at work. And we also know the value of repetition when we read. When an author repeats a word or a phrase, we know to pay attention, to slow down and ask why the author would do that, and to consider what the author wants us to know. Well, Psalm 136, which, which Matthew just read for us, it calls us to give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever, occurs in every single verse of the psalm, 26 times in all, you probably noticed. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Psalm 136 at times, that can seem a bit excessive, a little much. I can at times read Psalm 136 and be tempted even to skip it as I read. Like, after all, after a little bit, the, the psalm continues to flow even without it, without saying it or, or, or saying it in your head as you read. If you're with me there, I, we, do that to our own harm, I think. At the very least, we shortchange ourself, ourselves of blessing and encouragement and hope when we skip that obvious, intentional repetition of God's never-ending, steadfast love. We need to be reminded of that, right? When faced with our sin, with trials and temptations with suffering, with worry, as we consider what's going on in our world and in our country, we're, we're prone to wonder. We're prone to doubt God's love for us. We're prone to question God's ways and God's character and whether or not he's going to come through for us in the end. Uh, instead of brimming over with grateful thanksgiving, the kind that's present even in the midst of real hurt and pain and lamentation, 
the cup of our hearts can overflow with doubt and despair and cynicism and worry and bitterness and apathy. Psalm 136 is like a splash of cold water. Or more accurately, it's like 26 splashes of cold water right in the face, uh, right in the face of our weary souls. Um, the, the psalmist, and we don't know who that is, the Bible doesn't tell us, calls us to give thanks to the Lord, to recognize and praise him for who he is and what he's done. And in this psalm, and these are the points uh, this morning in our outline that you'll see on the screen, we're led to give thanks because of, one, God's character and supremacy, two, God's works, which include his work in creation, his work in delivering his people, his work in giving his people an inheritance, and his work in providing for his people and all mankind. And then three, and this runs throughout the entire psalm and, and, and supports and undergirds the entire thing, we're led to give thanks because of God's steadfast love that endures forever. So let's look at that first point in verses 1 to 3, God's character and supremacy. The text says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Three times, and once in each verse, the psalm calls us to give thanks. And it'll give that same command in the last verse of the psalm, in verse 26, providing the bookends to the psalm, if you will. That alone should catch our attention. But also, I think there's reason to conclude that that command, the, the, the prompt to give thanks, is implied in every verse in this psalm. So when we read of God and his character, uh, what can be implied is give thanks to this God who did this thing for his steadfast love endures forever. It's give thanks, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks, and on and on. We are to give thanks to the Lord, to recognize him for who he is and what he's done and praise him for those things. Now, these verses, they tell us about God's character, who he is. First off, he is Yahweh. The word translated Lord is likely in your Bible in all caps. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh, and it's how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 when he called him to lead his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. There in Exodus 3, verses 13 to 15, Moses has this exchange with God. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people, say, to the peop say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, 
and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So again, the, the, the word here, Lord, in all caps, in Hebrew, is Yahweh. And, and the term translated in our Bibles, I am who I am, is similar. T.D. Alexander notes that. He says this, Unlike previous names, Yahweh does not limit God's nature to any particular characteristic. He is what he is. Furthermore, his nature does not change. He is the God worshipped by earlier generations, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and generations yet to come. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to, to be remembered from generation to generation. God is Yahweh, the personal, knowable, unchanging God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and every single person in that line of faith ever since, including you and me. And Psalm 136 reminds us that we should give thanks to him for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this quality of steadfast love, it, it also points us back to Exodus, but this time to chapter 34. There, God passes before Moses and proclaims his name to him, and he says in verses six to seven, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Yahweh abounds in steadfast love. But the question is, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, I, I like the way the ESV study Bible puts it. Uh, th this comes in the Bible when it's actually explaining Psalm 100 verse 5, which says, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, here's what the ESV study Bible says. These terms, steadfast love and faithfulness, evoke Exodus 34, 6. The foundation of joy for God's people is his enduring character of gracious love, of keeping his promises. Steadfast love refers to God's loving, loyal, covenant-keeping character. And I'm assuming that Sally Lloyd-Jones has that in mind in this little gem of a children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you haven't read it to your kiddos, I would highly recommend it. Even if you don't have kids in the home, I'd recommend it if you're an adult. It's really good, really good uh, summary of Scripture. So, so encouraging. Here's how she talks about God's love in this story Bible. She, she refers to it as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I just love that. So good. That's the love that God had, and that's the love that God still has for his people. He's committed. He is forever faithful. So give thanks to Yahweh, verse 1 of Psalm 136 says, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
And verses two to three say, give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. God is supreme over all. There's no one like him. He has no equal. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. Not, not that other gods actually existed, but other people certainly did believe in them. And these pretend gods, they're nothing compared to the one true God. And don't miss something wonderful here. At one and the same time, these verses tell us, God is supreme over everything, yet he's also revealed himself to his people as Yahweh and extended to them his steadfast love. He is supreme, he is the king, yet he's also shown himself to them as their loving, personal God. He's high above, but he's also close. The ESV Study Bible, again, has a helpful note here. It says, as the psalm develops, it will be clear that this affirmation of the Lord's supremacy never makes him remote. Instead, it shows why his steadfast love, which endures forever, is effective for his people. So consider this. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God makes great promises to a man named Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later in Genesis 15, God reaffirms his promise, and he makes a covenant with Abraham, guaranteeing that his offspring would possess the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Then, in Genesis 17, God asks Abraham to walk before him and be blameless so that he could make a covenant between himself and Abraham and multiply Abraham greatly. And in that chapter, he makes an everlasting covenant with Abraham, promising Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of nations, that kings would come from him, that he would be God to Abraham and his offspring after him, that he would give him and his offspring the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Those are great, big promises from the Lord to this man. What a shame it would be, and that's putting it lightly, if God promised those things to him but was unable to actually deliver on them. I think that's what the ESV Study Bible is getting at. Uh, his supremacy never makes him remote. Instead, it shows why his steadfast love, which endures forever, is effective for his people. God is actually able to do what he promises. He's supreme. Not only that, he is good and the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's not only able to make good on his word, but he's faithful to keep his word. He is truly, forever, lovingly committed to his people. That was true for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Israel, and it's true for you and me. And because of that, we should give thanks to God for who he is. We should also recognize what he's done and praise him for those things. And 
That brings us to our second point here, God's works. Now, in this section, looking at verses four to 25, the psalmist tells us what God has done, all the while reminding us that God's steadfast love endures forever. And broadly speaking, the psalm looks at what we'll break down into four categories, creation, deliverance, inheritance, and provision. So let's look at creation first, verses four to nine. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. God alone does great wonders. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't blow past that verse. Let that sink in for a second. God made everything that is. He didn't have raw materials. He created everything that exists. He created the universe out of nothing. That's crazy. It's just mind-blowing. And simply by speaking, he can utter a phrase like, let there be light and light. Or let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and boom, there it happens. There it is. And on the earth in Genesis 1, he commands those things and he also commands there to be plants and trees and he calls into being sea creatures and birds and land animals and when he says it, there they are. I read about a study, or I, yeah, I read about a 2011 study that estimated there are around 8.7 million different species on the planet. Think about that. 8.7 million. God made plants like the cactus, the ficus bonsai tree, which I kind of know what that is, and the Venus flytrap, which my kids refer to as piranha plants for all you Super Mario fans out there. God made animals like the giraffe, the ostrich, which for some reason I personally find terrifying, and the peregrine falcon. God made sea creatures like the clownfish, the great white shark, and the blue whale. And we could go on and on and on. How amazing is that? And that doesn't even take space into account. God can say, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and when he says it, it happens. I've, I've shared some of this before but uh, think again about the universe that we live in. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is absolutely massive. If you were to move at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, 
it would take you 100,000 years to get across our galaxy. And in our galaxy, our small little galaxy, there are around 100 billion stars. But get this, according to NASA, this is a quote, scientists calculate that there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, each one brimming with stars. There are more stars than grains of sand on all of Earth's beaches combined. One estimate says that there are at least a billion trillion stars in the universe. Those numbers are so big, like, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. So yes, God alone does great wonders. And here, the psalmist places creation. He places creation in the context of God's steadfast love that endures forever. And referring to verse six, which addresses God as him who spread out the earth above the waters, John Calvin, he helps us understand, I think, how these things, creation and steadfast love, go together. He says this, the earth's expanded surface and the vacant space and covered with water has been justly considered one of the great wonders of God. And it is ascribed to his mercy because his only reason for displacing waters from their proper seat was that regard which he had in his infinite goodness for the interest of man. In other words, God's people can look to God's creation, his making of it and his sustaining it, and see in it a reminder of his forever loving, faithful commitment to them. Next, in verses 10 to 16, the psalmist focus, focuses on God's deliverance of his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. The text here, it says, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever, to him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever." These verses here point back to the Exodus when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Well, God promised back in Genesis 15, a text that I referenced just a moment ago, that this was gonna happen. There in verses 13 to 16, he says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Psalm 136 reminds us that God fulfilled this promise to Abraham. He called Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. In the midst of Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to let them go, God brought plague after plague upon the land until finally with the 10th plague, he killed the firstborn of Egypt. But he spared the firstborn of Israel. Finally, 
Pharaoh let God's people leave, but, the, but before they went, Israel inconceivably plundered the Egyptians on their way out. God previously told Moses in Exodus 3, 21 to 22, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. That's incredible. They were slaves, yet not only did God deliver them out of their bondage, but he also enabled them to plunder their enemies like a conquering army on the way out. And as Psalm 136 reminds us though, Pharaoh and his army came after them. And between the advancing army of Pharaoh and the Red Sea, uh, Israel was in a situation that could have seemed helpless. But God intervened He divided the Red Sea in two, enabling his people to cross safely to the other side. And what did he do to the Egyptians? To Pharaoh and his army, God brought the waters of his judgment down upon them, upon the enemy. The God who made great promises to Abraham and his offspring rescued that people from slavery in Egypt through a series of miraculous plagues and by parting the Red Sea. God alone does great wonders. His steadfast love endures forever. And after he did this, despite the complaining and idolatry of his people, God faithfully brought them through the wilderness to the land of Canaan, the land he promised to give them as an inheritance. Let's look now at verses 17 to 22. To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. You may remember that when Israel reached the land of Canaan, God told Moses to send 12 men one from each of the tribes of Israel to spy out the land. The men did that, and they brought back good news about the produce of the land, but with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the other spies, the other 10, uh, brought back a bad report about the land. They faithlessly determined that they couldn't go up against the Canaanites. The people heard this, and they refused to enter the land of promise. They even said to stone Joshua and Caleb, who were encouraging them to obey the Lord and go into the land. At this, God God told Moses in Numbers 14, 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses pled with the Lord to forgive his people. And then listen to this. Listen to what the Lord says uh, or, or what Moses says in Numbers fourteen seventeen to 19. He says, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord, Yahweh, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, 
just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So did you catch that? Moses appealed to God's steadfast love, to his covenant faithfulness. And God did forgive, but he didn't spare his people from the consequences of their sin. The 10 faithless spies, they died by plague. And God said that no one who grumbled against him age 20 or older would enter the land. A whole generation was gonna die off. They would die off in the wilderness, but the promise remained. Their children would go in. For 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. But eventually, in Numbers 21, they began to defeat the Canaanites. Two, two kings they win victory over um, and, and Numbers 21 are Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Two kings mentioned in Psalm 136. And of this, the ESV study Bible says, the defeat of Sion and Og was the first taste of victory for the new generation of Israel, and it strengthened their faith. Israel is under the special care of the creator-redeemer who exercises his power for their sake. What a privilege. I love the way that that's worded. Indeed, what a privilege. God's steadfast love endures forever. He made wonderful, great big promises to Abraham. He extended those promises to Isaac and Jacob and his people Israel. He started, he carried promises out through Moses, through Joshua, and on and on. God is, God is committed his, he is exercising steadfast love on behalf of his people. And the people of Israel, they would eventually come to the land, to the land of Canaan. Uh, they, they, they would stand before the Jordan River and, and, and after they went across, begin to conquer the Canaanites. But before they did so, Moses says this to them in Deuteronomy 4, 37 to 40. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater, greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. God's steadfast love was with his people every step of the way. He was and he is always faithful to keep his promises. He is always lovingly committed to his people. That was true in an additional situation here in Psalm 136, which is described in verses 23 to 25. The text says, It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, it's not entirely clear what situation that's referring to, but what is clear is that God works on behalf of his people. He remembered them when they, are, when they were humbled, when they were in their low estate. He rescued them from their foes, and wonderfully, he gives food not just to them, but to all flesh. God alone does great wonders. Great 
is his steadfast love. And that brings us to our third point, God's steadfast love. So you may have noticed that up until now, we've mostly just considered God's steadfast love toward Israel in the Old Testament. After all, we're working through a psalm, which is in the Old Testament and recounts events in Israel's history. But what does all of this have to do with you and me this morning? What specifically can we say about Psalm 136 and its application to us? This is a longer quote, but I think it's really helpful. Alec Motier, he summarizes Psalm 136 and he beautifully brings it right to our doorstep. Here's what he says. The supreme reality is not the Lord's status, nor his work in creation and history, nor even his goodness to Israel, but what he is in himself, the one whose love endures forever. To this point of emphasis and reiteration, everything returns. His status would by itself inspire awe. His creatorial works marvel. His power evident in history, submission. His goodness, gratitude. But when we see that all these greatnesses spring from an unchanging love which delights to manifest power and mercy and provision, then the Lord is truly acknowledged with wonder, love, and praise. What is it to us that he is good, supremely exalted, the creator, the Lord of history, the benefactor of people in time past? If there is not also the unchanging love which brings us too into the warm embrace and keeping of such a God. Therefore, we, with our pilgrim brothers and sisters of the Old Testament church, can retrace our foundational pilgrimage from Egypt to Canaan and sing with them at every step that his love endures forever. No power can resist him. We are safe because the world we live in is his world. We too experience redemption, enjoy provision irrespective of circumstance, enter into our inheritance through his victory, marvel at the condescension of his choice of us, and eat our daily bread looking with gratitude to the hand that feeds us, the love that endures forever. In other words, if you are here this morning, if you are here in this room or you're watching online and you're trusting in Jesus, God has extended to you by his grace, through faith in Jesus, his steadfast love. And think about that now. Let's retrace some of our steps in Psalm 136. God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the text says. Jesus in Revelation 17:4 is the Lamb, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. God is the creation of the universe. Colossians 1:16 gives us a glimpse into this and tells us that all things were created by Jesus, for or through Jesus and for Jesus. And get this, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he tells us this, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Just as God spoke creation into existence, so he has performed a new work of creation in your heart if you are trusting in Jesus. I love how Soren Kierkegaard reflects on this. He says, God creates out of nothing, 
wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure, but he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and gave them an inheritance of land, conquering his and their enemies in the process. Think of what he's done for us. He sent Jesus, the far-off son of Abraham, to save his people from their sins. Before Jesus' public ministry began, he was tempted by Satan, guess where? In the wilderness. And while Israel failed there, Jesus didn't. In fact, Jesus never sinned. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God, and he succeeded not just where Israel failed, but where we all have failed too. And for us and for our salvation, he died on the cross for our sins. He met us in our weakness. He met us in our lowly estate. He met us in our sin. As Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was swallowed up by the waters of God's judgment so that we could live. But three days later, God raised him triumphantly and victoriously from the dead. And now, because of what Christ did, God's promise for you and his promise for me is that if we turn from our sin and if we turn in faith to Jesus, God will forgive us. He will cleanse us. He will declare us not guilty but righteous instead on the basis of what Christ has done. If that doesn't describe you, if you haven't laid hold of that today, please let today be the day that you come to Jesus. You don't need to wait to clean up your act first. All that you need to do is come empty-handed. You need to lay down your weapons and come to the king. Humbly feel your need of him and ask him to save you. He is ready, he is willing, and he's able to do it. Now, if this does describe you, if you are trusting in Jesus, then God has delivered you. As Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our conquering king and deliverer. And get this, do you remember the promises that God made to Abraham? Those promises to bless all the families of the earth, to give him innumerable offspring. Do you know how God is fulfilling that promise? It's not through physical descendants. It's not by raising up physical children of Abraham, but rather by raising up men and women, boys and girls of faith who exercise a faith like Abraham's. That's why Paul in Galatians 3, 7 can say, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You were part of that family. And you, by God's grace, you have an inheritance, an inheritance that you experience now in part, but that you will experience and know in full later. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been brought into a family. 
a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are together awaiting the day when Jesus returns and we will dwell with him in a land that doesn't have an expiration date. We will dwell with him. He will be our God and we will be his people forever and ever and ever. Nothing can take that from us. No one can separate us from the love of God. And in the meantime, while we wait on that, while we wait to experience our inheritance in full, God is exercising his providential loving care of us every single step of the way. Not only does he invite us to ask him for our daily bread and, and provide for us, but he is also working in us by the power of his spirit, ensuring that we're actually gonna make it. We're gonna make it all the way home. Paul is so confident of that that in Philippians 1.6, he can tell the church there in Philippi, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's gonna do it. He is faithful to do it. He doesn't just promise something he can't deliver on. He makes a promise and he completes it. So what should we say to these things? God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He has graciously extended it to us. He, he graciously extended it to Abraham and the people of Israel. And he's graciously, wonderfully, lovingly, faithfully shown it to us. And because that's true, we should, as Psalm 136 ends in verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. And in the words of, of a commentator, William S. Plummer, he says this, let us abound in adoration and thanksgiving. And I love this. In this matter, there is no danger of excess so long as we are humble and hearty. We can't praise God too much. You can't thank him too much. You can't go overboard. This applies to us not just this week as we're approaching Thanksgiving, but in every circumstance. When we are enjoying God's creation, when we are enjoying God's good gifts that he gives us, we can gratefully proclaim his steadfast love endures forever. When we're reading our Bibles or spending time in prayer, or spending time with each other, our brothers and sisters, we can praise God for his steadfast love endures forever. When we're in sin, when we're in need of forgiveness, we can with David in Psalm 51.1 cry out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. God invites us to come to him like that. That's crazy when we're suffering and at the end of our rope, rather than give way to bitterness and cynicism and doubt and despair, we can take up Lamentations 3, 21 to 24, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord, Yahweh, is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. To borrow from Sally Lloyd-Jones, God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. He is for us. He's not against us. 
He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. And, and, and get this, he loves us. He, he, he loves us. Let that sink in. Sometimes it's hard to really believe that. But, but God loves you. God loves me. Like, it's, it's wonderful, but it's true. So repetition, it can be a really good thing. Good thing, especially for, for folks like me who are prone to wonder and doubt or forget that God loves me. Sally Lloyd-Jones uses that tool so well in the Jesus Storybook Bible. In fact, um, earlier this week, I asked James, my son, about it. Um, it's been a little while since we've read that book, but I thought he might remember, so I tried to like, coax it out of him. And at first, he wasn't getting it, and so I started to read the, the quote to him. And I said, uh, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and as I started to say unbreaking, he actually finished it. He still remembered. Unbreaking, always and forever love. She uses repetition well in that Bible. A song like Jesus Loves Me, as simple as it is, uses that well. It's simple, but it's true. It's profound. We're reminded, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And most magnificently, Psalm 136 does that. So I think it's fitting for us this morning to engage together in some praise-filled repetition. So let's read Psalm 136 together here um, before um, the, the, the praise team comes up. Let's read this together. I'll read the first part, and I would ask that you all read the, the re repeated line, for a steadfast love endures forever. And as we read, think about God's steadfast love. Marvel at it. Rejoice that it's been extended to you. As Alec Motier points out, it is the abiding grounding of the whole work of God, creation to new creation. It is the reason for every single thing he has ever done. It is the comforting, reassuring truth for the difficult day when we walk through the wilderness. It is the inexplicable reason for the great day when our particular scions and augs fall or we experience a bit more of our eternal inheritance, love to the power of 26. Not in our greatness, worthiness, importance, significance, whatever did he love us, but in our negligibility when we were without, without strength, sinners, enemies. Great is his steadfast love. Please stand with me and let's read this together. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods, Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. 
to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh, give thanks to the God of heaven. Amen. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Help us to lay hold of it. Help us to believe it. Help us to cling in faith to you, to your promises, and your love for us. Lord, may we be rejoicing in Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf, that he who created all things has delivered us from sin, has rescued us from the slavery uh, in which we walked, has given us salvation and forgiveness and hope, and who one day will return, re return to, to be with us. We will dwell with you, you will uh, we will dwell with you. You will be our God. We will be your people forever and ever and ever. As we wait, Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us thankful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.